All right. So, Mr. Lugosi. Thank you. Thank y'all. Be well. (laughs) Take care. Be well. Dude, I'm really happy that you made us watch Glenn or Glenda the other night because we I watched Ed Wood now maybe two weeks ago, week and a half ago, and it's not in my, fresh in my mind like it was mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. So I'm happy that we got to watch, like, that's his first film? Yeah, it's his first film. Yeah. I want to know who's, so actually Glenn or Glenda is like the film in his filmography that's considered like one of the worst films of all time, but... I feel like you can you can figure this out if you think a little bit. Which filmmaker has it as one of his favorite films of all time? Think for a little bit. Who would say that was one of their favorite films? You know it. It's not like one of my favorite filmmakers. No. no. Alright, so you know exactly where I'm going with yeah. my my train of thought. No. Um like it, it, it makes sense when you think about like when you try to piece together like who this could be. It makes sense that they would say this is their favorite, one of their favorite films. Weird director. Can I give it? Can you give me a hint on genre or like longevity? Like how long have they been a, a public figure? For a while, I think since like the eighties. El Motivar. Mm-mm. That was a pretty good guess. That was a good guess. Yeah, that's I don't I'm not to say that El Motivar is weird, but like El Motivar he's enjoys <clears throat> yeah, he's his cinema is like the definition of queer cinema and we can get into this one a little bit. I mean, we're actually here talking about Ed Wood, but we can get yeah. into Glenn or Glenda and I feel like that is also just before its time as far as queer cinema. It's yeah. quite impressive. But uh right. no, okay, let me one think. One more guess. One, one more guess. guess. All right, not El Motivar. Is he American? Yeah. Is he what genre does he do? I, I guess it's a cross. He does a lot of sci-fi and mystery. David Lynch. Yep. Yeah. David Lynch. David Lynch. Does as that make as, sense? Yeah, that does. That he would. That that would be one of his favorite films. What did he say made him like it so much? I don't. Know, I just saw like a sentence when I was looking up the film. Like David Lynch cites this as one of his favorite films of all time. Like I'm. I'm curious <laughs> what would be the scene that did it for him. Probably I the Bela Lugosi shit. Like it. Um, yeah. Because you know what the Bela Lugosi shit actually reminds me of? Have you seen David Lynch movies? Like, what have you seen from him? I actually might not have seen anything by him. Really? Yeah. So you just know him as a public figure. You don't even know him as a director. Mm-hmm. You should watch Mulholland Drive. That might be the first one I ever saw of him. And I quote that as, like, the scariest non-scary horror movie ever. There's another movie that did that, too. But I'm blanking. I've, I've, I've used that for a couple films. But specifically, yeah. Mulholland Drive is a... Very scary non-horror movie. And there is a scene where a guy is talking about like a blue box or something in this weird like old theater. And now that I think about it, it's almost identical to Bela Lugosi's like <laughs> random speeches in Glen or Glenda. Green dragon. Like, pull the string. Dog pull the string. That's Bat snails. I kind of want to get a Bela Lugosi t-shirt. No, tattoo. <laughs> like more permanent. Just his face on your back, like DMX with his pit bull yeah. on his back. I think R.I.P. To both. Pitbull died. No, DMX has he had a tattoo of his pit bull spike oh. on his back. <laughs> I was like, damn, I didn't know you're a huge pit bull pit bull fan. Yeah, I've been a day one. Um, maybe we should address this right now as well. Um, if you're seeing this in black and white, and we sound like old news radio telecasters, um, is that the right word? Telecasters. Yeah, that right. sounds right. I feel like telemans. My first word is teleprompter, but that is a device. I feel like telecaster is video. Whatever. If we sound like we're on the Give radio, then um, that's because we did it intentionally because of Ed Wood and his films. And also... And the Ed Wood the biopic, Ed Wood biopic that we're here to talk by, about. Uh, by Tim Burton. Um, which is done in black and white. I've heard our podcast get referenced as the Ed Wood of podcasts. <laughs> because it's so nuanced. It's, yeah, because we do one take and then just put it out there. It's perfect. Yeah, because it's real life. Because <laughs> we're dealing with the elements. Now, I think, like, I asked you this question before we saw Glenn or Glenda. But <laughs> I asked you this question, I thought to myself, if you watch something like 
Citizen Kane. We recognize that as a fantastic, like a historical masterpiece because we are told it's a historical masterpiece. I'm sure you could find people today that still love it, like actually genuinely love it. But I remember watching that for the first time and thinking like, okay, I can see why this was really a big deal. Like it invented different techniques of filmmaking and it's considered to be like the greatest movie of all time, but it's certainly not the movie that I enjoyed the most. Mm -hmm. It's, and honestly, if someone told me instead that it was a piece of shit, like I probably would have believed that too. My, I actually haven't met a single person who raved about it to me. They've either said it's boring or it's they didn't get what was so great about it. Yeah, so my point is like, basically, if I wasn't told about that movie, then I probably would think it's terrible. So mm-hmm. are we influenced to think Ed Wood films are bad because we're told they're bad? And instead, if we were told by a film critic how amazing they were and historically important they were, we would actually consider them different? That was the question I asked you. And then I saw Glenn or Glenda. And I was like, no, it's just truly not good. And that's why I wanted to watch some of those films before we recorded this podcast, because I I wanted to see that. Like, I've only heard heard about it. Like, for our listeners slash viewers... Uh, the only reason I know really of this film and know of Ed Wood is because like when I was in high school, one day like my dad asked me if I could rip um, Plan 9 from Outer Space from YouTube and burn it on a blank DVD copy or a blank DVD like um, disc for him so he could watch it later, which is such a early 2000s, like 2010 like thing to do. Oh yeah, I remember <laughs> my dad. I remember my dad using used to do that a lot. But, so I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. With him. Like I thought he was speaking gibberish, and then he told me all about like Ed Wood and how he's just like this, like the worst filmmaker of all time, and like his sets are so cheap. They use like terrible, like effects, not even effects. Like in Plan Nine, like when you see a UFO flying around, it's literally like someone holding a toy, like UFO on a string. And like poorly cropping it into the background of like stock footage of like New York City, um, so that's always been like burned in my mind. Then he told me that Tim Burton and Johnny Depp made a, a biopic or, or in a biopic about Ed Wood, and he said that's really good. So I've always had them in the back of my mind. I never thought about like watching him until now, and I'm glad I did because the biopic's really good. Yeah, his actually... films are really bad. But in a really good way, like an enjoyable way to like just watch bad cinema and bad like filmmaking, because like seeing the problems or like the the weird techniques and whatnot, it's kind of admirable in a way. Um, I really view Ed Wood as someone who, especially after the biopic, as someone who loved filmmaking and loved the idea of writing films, making films with his friends and just not, like, giving a damn about the perception. Like, if you see the Ed Wood biopic, any time his film premiered, people are throwing popcorn at the screen and booing, everyone's in an uproar. That could be dramatic. I don't know. I wasn't there in the 50s. But he's got a smile on his face while everyone else is upset by the poor reception. Like, he just didn't care. He just loved the idea of making films so much that he just kept going and going and then eventually he turned to making like monster porn movies, which is very bizarre. And I don't know what compelled him to should do have that. watch one of those. We should have. Um, so yeah, he's he's kind of in a way he can be considered an inspiration just to keep going, no matter like what people it was think a, of your work. It was work. a very endearing story. Like I kept saying that, like he just was so earnest, or at least Johnny Depp's portrayal of him is such an earnest, like, this is what I want and I don't care. I love it and I want to keep doing it type of person. Mm-hmm. And it having the heart not to tell someone like that, like, like almost like that's embodying a puppy dog. Like, you're just not good. Like, you shouldn't yeah. be doing this. But Dom, my girlfriend, also brought up a really good point. She's like, it's almost a fake it till you make it story. Like, the amount of people he got to invest in his movies and, like, somehow do this for a living, even though he clearly wasn't made for it, was impressive as shit. Yep. And he rarely went to the same guy twice to get funding for his film. It was always somebody new or some new organization that, like, backed him. He's just an interesting phenomenon. Like, 
and so he's significantly more likable than Tommy Wiseau, which yep. makes it easier to get behind like being an Edward fan. Like I'm not really a, a Tommy Wiseau fan because Tommy was like kind of an asshole. And isn't he was an entitled? Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe Johnny Depp's portrayal of Ed was a little bit more flattering than how he was in real life because he did become an alcoholic and like mm-hmm. slightly abusive. Yep. Um, I know that the movie tries to portray him and his wife were like really happy till the end, but like I read somewhere that actually he died of a heart attack and she refused to come into the room because she was sick of shit <laughs> and didn't think, thought he was just fucking with her or something. And yeah. then she came in later and he was dead. So, well, the film ends before we even get to any of that part of his yeah. life. So it could have been, for what they portrayed, it could have been pretty accurate. And granted, our opinions of these movies are heavily based on the biopic and not like research. So if you watch Ed Wood, it's in the eyes of someone who the the lens is a empathetic lens or sympathetic lens to yeah. Ed Wood as a character. Whereas Disaster Artist is kind of a sympathetic lens to what, Dave or whatever his name is, the friend of Tommy Wiseau. Uh, yeah, the author of the book. The author of the book, where Tommy's kind of the antagonist almost mm. in that story. He's kind of an asshole, you know. That book's fantastic, though. You read it? Yeah. Yeah? It's a blast. Damn. <laughs> damn, damn, I should read it. But I did think that this movie was my Probably my second favorite Tim Burton movie. I called it my favorite until I remembered Big Fish. Mm, yeah, but agreed. It's really well done storytelling. It feels like the the world of Ed Wood just lends itself so well to Tim Burton's eye. Yeah. Um, the black and white sort of nature, the the darker tones, more you know, brush blacks and really highlighted areas, and the actors he got to play some of the roles. Like I don't even know who played Bella Lugosi, but it's almost just <laughs> Bella Lugosi. I know. I I, I did. I'm pretty sure that dude. Is like a pretty well-known actor, but I just, I don't know him enough. All I know now is that I never will stop saying the name Bella Lugosi. And I kind of want to do a Bella Lugosi month like, and give him some credit where credit's due. Because he was kind of the best part of the Ed Wood movies. Yeah. And, yeah, the, the OG Dracula. Yeah. It's so strange. I mean, maybe we can dive into that a little bit. But it's so strange that bad filmmakers tend to make really good biopics. Is that like... We just like, well, it's just because there's just kind of a, I don't know, enigmatic um, idea behind them. Like, what compels someone who's notoriously making terrible films to keep going, as well as even generate enough success to finish the damn thing? Um, or even, for, like, for the sake of Ed Wood, how how he got so many investors to back him, like how he got a freaking... What was it, the Baptist Church organization to give them 60K to make Plan 9 from outer space, promising them that once that takes off and they make money from that, they'll make their religious movie. He'll make their religious yeah, movie how much do you think? How much do you think was actual luck and then skill? Because they have that scene in the film where he assumes that the leading lady whose name is escaping me now, not Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker, but Trish the... Arca. No, not Patricia Arquette. The, oh, the, the other one. The other Who actress. took over yeah. for Sarah Jessica Parker. He, he assumes that she can pay $60,000. Yeah. And, and then the middle of shooting, she can't. Mm-hmm. She gave him everything he had. That's a clear fuck up. Yeah. So clearly he made mistakes, which means partially he must have gotten lucky. So how much was luck and how much was skill? Yeah. The skill is just his salesmanship. The fact that he can just pitch that, pitch these movies that... And even think of the names, like, you know, that scene where he's in front of the big time producer who shuts him down and he just won't stop pitching just just names. It's never like a plot. It's only the names. Like he's like, the Bride of the Atom. He's like, what does that even mean? It's a, it's a sci-fi movie called The Bride of the Atom. It's like, okay. And he just kept, then he throws out other names and other names and other names. And uh, like the original Plan 9 from Outer Space is like Grave Robbers from Outer Space, which... What kind of concept is that? But he thought that the, these unique names for his movies would be enough to sell when he had no idea um, what to do. Like Glenn or Glenda, he just told that producer who was trying to make a movie about um, sex change, he just told him that, that he could be the guy to do it because he's a cross-dresser. And then immediately he goes home and like bangs out a script in like maybe like two days or something. So it's like... 
he agrees to these or comes up with these ideas only on a name basis and hardly a plot basis. And then just goes home and writes them, writes them out, probably doesn't make any edits to it. And then there you have it. So he's the most rushed filmmaker, I think, of all time. He may have been more successful as if he had decided not to be a director, writer, and producer. Because actually his producing skills are impressive. Like you're saying, like he got a lot of people to give him money and invest in him and believe in him. But imagine if he was doing it for good films. Imagine if his job was just to find good films and like help find the funding and make the movie and make it big yeah. instead of in charge of all of the different directions and rushing him. You're right. I think like the biggest problem of his filmmaking is the rushing. He the Russian? The, no, the rushing. <laughs> okay. The rushing through it, though. So, like, not taking the proper amount of time in order to write out a story, not taking multiple takes, trying to film 25 takes in a night, and impressing people with that, but also sacrificing the quality. Right. You know? I guess at the same time, though, when you think about some of the films, like, I think, Bride of the Atom, which became Bride of the Monster, I think from the biopic, when they're filming that, they're in a studio, a film studio, trying to do the 25... 25 takes in a night, but they get kicked out of the studio. So, like, he's rushing to do this mostly because he knows he can't be there or, like, he can't afford to no, be there. but he gets kicked out because they don't have the money because right. that woman was supposed to give him the money and she didn't have it, right? Wasn't that the... I thought there was another time where they got kicked out because they actually, like, weren't supposed to be there or something. Or, like, they weren't... They didn't have... It was, like, after that. It was, like, another time they were filming, I thought, where, like, they were in the studio and no one was there. And then someone, like a security guard, showed up or something, and like, like they don't have the money to pay for their time. And the guy's like, "Yeah, you got to get out of here." So they're trying. So it's like he's rushing to get it all done because he knows he can't afford to be where they are. Sometimes. That's also yeah. That maybe I missed that part. I mean, it was already a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think also about, you know, if we're talking about his his just it. Not just the rushing through the process, but also just the story-wise. Was there even a story to Glenn or Glenda? I can't yeah. really... What was the story, really? Technically, the story was two stories. One of them was 10 minutes long, and the other was about 50 minutes long, where the Glenn or Glenda, which is Ed Wood playing Glenn, and then his um, cross-dressing alter ego, alter ego Glenda, and basically talking about why he chooses to do that and what it means. Um, and then the other, the, like that other story that only lasted like 10 minutes towards the end was like, uh, it had to do with um, that person was cross-dressing because of their mom always wanted a daughter. And it was some sort of like, you know, up sort of upbringing that like shifted their view to make them, that would make them want to be like a crossdresser or something. But nevertheless, if you like, you know, huge thick bushes that you have to push away, if you push through all the crap that's in that movie and you look to the core value of it, it's a very sympathetic like movie that's trying to give you like awareness and like respect for people who are like that, whether they have sex change operations, which is hardly touched on in the movie when it's supposed to be all about that, and he totally missed the mark on that, or about people who, who cross-dress, dressing like a woman, men who dress like women, um, which, I for the 50s especially, is pretty profound. I it's agree. not the first time there's any sort of, um, you know, like, you know, queer um, themes in a movie. There's there's plenty well before it, but really? I think... Do you know one? Uh, there's a few Charlie Chaplin films that haven't. Really? I don't remember the name of them, but I, I did a lot of research on it because I wanted to know like where this movie kind of lands sat on that on, on the that, history the of like history LGBTQ. Of the funny thing though, and I feel like it's purposefully ignored because it's not a good movie. There is only besides a Wikipedia article, there is only one article that I found that actually like mentions it in like the LGBTQ film timeline always gets ignored in all the other ones and I feel like it's because it's not a good film and they like maybe these people are only highlighting the good films that will show you like actually like generally good depictions or representations. Which one is it? You're just leaving me in suspense. The article? I... No, no, no. Well, it's the film that they leave out. Glenn or Glenn. Oh, okay. Yeah, the one we're talking about. 
thought you were talking. I thought you were talking about a totally different film. No, no, You're no, like, no. there's one film that they leave out of the LGBTQ. No, I said it's the one film that they leave ah. out on the timeline. Like every well, other article, like shows the same films, and then it skips. But not that one. I get it. Yeah, that's weird though, because I feel like the thing that made this movie endearing, which is really why I think the film Ed Wood is so nicely told through a sympathetic look for this filmmaker rather than like an asshole look which again they could have done that if mm-hmm. we'll get into that in a second what made the film Glenn or Glenda at least feel endearing to me was that it felt like it was trying to not really I don't want to say justify but kind of explain someone who feels that way and how it's okay Yeah. so essentially just trying to justify his feelings to an audience and say like this is why i am this way and this is why i want to stay this way and it's there's nothing wrong with that and that is a very human thing to feel like you know yeah and because glenn, that's the one thing i took away from glenn and glenda past all the weird shit even uh, like the steel mill stock uh, the steel mill stock footage the stock footage that repeats was a little was really weird the buffalo transition <laughs> besides <laughs> the buffalo transition honestly Belagosi's still my favorite part of it all. I don't think Ed Wood's a good actor. No. Um, but the endearing part is this is really him. He was a cross-dresser. And so this film is really him pouring his heart out in film and hoping people accept him. That's what it felt like. And that, again, is an endearing thing. Like, regardless if you're good or not, it's you can relate to that. It's like seeing a singer get up on stage who's so scared and terrified of doing it. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad. Like, you just really kind of respect Mm-hmm. pouring your your soul out in that in that craft yeah. and the biopic even sheds a little more light on that and the, the behind the scenes of that because his girlfriend at the time um i mean was it dolores sarah jessica parker's character oh we can google it um oh wait i don't have internet here we can't google oh, it okay. well never mind oh so she what? so she is if you're watching this time, this is very anachronistic we have uh, iphones and an old recording and a, and a laptop <laughs> yeah it's not not really the 50s um but yeah so she's his girlfriend at the time she wants to be a big star and the two of them are supposed to work together to bring each other to stardom and then he had he gets the idea to make glenn or glenda and that's the first time that he admits to her confesses to her that he's a cross-dresser and she can't handle it meanwhile she's playing dolores fuller you were right oh yeah dolores fuller and kathy o'hara is Patricia Arquette, or... Yeah, Patricia Arquette is his other girlfriend. So, yeah, so Dolores is supposed to be, eventually, towards the end of the movie, a sympathetic, uh, or empathetic, I should say, um, partner to Glenn, and accepts that he is also Glenda, and, like, wants to work with him, and, you know, have that still be a a part of his life, and be by his side, because she supports him and loves him. But that in reality, doesn't happen with Dolores. And the most of the reason why they break up is because, one, she can't handle it, and two, the whole thing about making the investor like a star over her in the next film. Uh, I think that was Bride of, Bride of the Monster. So it's just kind of sad when you see that he makes a movie that coincidentally stars him and his girlfriend at the time, and it leads to sort of an acceptance from his partner in the movie. Meanwhile, in reality, that's not the case. Yeah, you're right. And I think that that in the film Ed Wood, in the biopic, we have to specify, I think, that scene where she goes into the back room to read the script and you see he's nervous and she comes out and he's in the in the dress. Mm-hmm. That's just the perfect example of like what he like what he what you're saying, what the whole movie is, which is like this film Glenn or Glenda is really just Ed Wood saying like what I want in my life and like being the most honest he can. And it's very hard to not compare this to something like Disaster Artist because, again, it's just the same type of film. It's Mm -hmm. about a filmmaker who was notoriously a really bad filmmaker. But the difference with the Disaster Artist is that Tommy Wiseau could never be honest with who he is as a person, like where he's he's from and how old he is, let alone what he wants and what his desires are, that he is, by, by definition closed off and therefore not relatable because he chooses not to be relatable. Ed Wood, even if his actions are not relatable because like I don't wear women's clothing, the 
act of trying to open up and be honest with your loved ones and with people around you and just be accepted for who you are is very understandable. Yeah. And that's why I think Tim Burton and Johnny Depp did a real justice to the person, particularly with this film, because it's a lot like most of the Ed Wood film that starts out pretty much about Glenn or Glenda. It does go into like a bunch of his other stuff. Then it ends with the plan nine plan plan nine. Yeah. But Glenn or Glenda is the kickoff, mm-hmm. which sets the tone of this again, like sympathetic look and sympathetic because you feel bad that he's just a bad filmmaker empathetic because you can relate to a person who just wants to be himself. Yeah. Right. And I think they did a real justice to that, to that guy. And like what you're saying, like that's, that's the, that's the most redeemable quality about Glenn or Glenda, regardless if it's a good movie or not. Like the backstory is what makes that movie better. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Like I've watched it twice. I didn't expect to watch it twice, but, uh, <laughs> but it truly I cannot is, believe you watched it twice with me. It, tr- it truly is like from a general standpoint, like their worst movies. Like I, I could probably watch it multiple times, just mainly cause it's like an hour, 15 minutes, but there are movies I've seen that are technically much worse than a general, like, I don't even know. Like they're just so bad. You can't watch it. So this falls in their lineup. It is actually really bad, but you can watch it. Like, yeah, but you know, you pointed out something when we were watching it, and I agree. Is it bad technically, or is it bad narratively? I feel like actually the kind of both. Yeah, kind of. All right. Yeah, no, no, no. It's <laughs> definitely both. both. You're you're right. It's definitely both. But I feel like knowing the backstory behind it, what we are talking about, makes the narrative more understandable. It yeah. Well, like I said, you know peeking, like, ripping away all the branches of, like, a thick bush to finally get to, like, the source of, like, this movie is what you need to do. And knowing the backstory it's is what like helps you get there. It's a documentary of his life. That's what I mean. Like, the, this film, the story is his story. And if you know that, then it's actually, you can look past that the narrative is not that good. Because then you can, you can see this as, like, oh, this is just him opening up. And, like, I can enjoy that because, mm-hmm. like, this is, you know, just a person and it's... It's, he's telling his story. Exactly what we're saying. I'm yeah. repeating myself. <laughs> it's the yeah. thing that would make me not want to rewatch it was the technical aspects of it. Like you mentioned when you were watching it, the sound popping. Yeah, the, 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 the so sound effects are so bad. Reminds me of this podcast sometimes. Um, no, we, we might we might do that for you in the editing. <laughs> but he's serious. It was terrible. It was te- like, and it was it was genuinely distracting. So I feel like a lot of the things that made his movies worse. And probably like scale scale pass for me the story because I I can enjoy a low budget sci fi don't get me wrong like Planet Nine or Plan Nine, Nine Plan Nine not Planet Nine Plan Nine formerly known as Grave Robbers from Outer Space <laughs> I could watch that it sounds awesome you know but it's the technical shit that kind of got to me like all the stock B roll yeah like, that, repeating it is just stupid nobody wants to see that twice in a movie that's right. the whole point right which which did become his like sort of claim to fame in a way is like he would take just any i guess any stock footage that he could find and just throw it into his movie when like he had to fill voids like what we were just talking about before with the steel mill conversation there is a there is a total like shift in the narrative halfway through Glen or glenda where two people who work at like some sort of like factory or steel mill are talking about um, someone being a, being a cross-dresser. But it's just voiceover while you're watching stock footage of a machine, um, like, melting and, like, compressing steel. So Ryan's like, got a great theory on that scene. I do? Yeah. Oh, of the characters? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was actually about to get into that. <laughs> um, yeah, so when one, one thing I noticed upon my second rewatch, why I got to watch movies twice, <laughs> is... Uh, when one guy's talking, you see the giant machine like doing the compressing, like flattening the steel, whatever. And when the other guy talks, it's the molten, like I don't even know the right words for it because I don't work in the mills. metal. Yeah, I guess. It's like, the, yeah, like, liquid. It's the, it's the you know melted metal. The melted metal, yeah, coming out of the machine. Whenever that shows up, the other guy's talking. So we're literally watching a conversation between a giant machine <laughs> and its product, going back and forth, talking about people cross-dressing so brian thinks that the machines were actually supposed to be the voices which i kind of think is hilarious yeah but cutting back to the same stock footage of the of the kids in the (laughs) every time in the playground 
was just ridiculous. Yeah, and using the same voiceovers too sometimes, like in the beginning, where they're they're talking about the concept of um, sex change operations and cross-dressing, and like there's that horrible woman with the high-pitched voice being like, well, the creator wanted me to be a woman, then that's what I'm going to be. That plays twice within two minutes. Yeah, and no, then, I think she says something along the lines of like, if the creator wanted us to fly, he would have oh, given yeah, us wings. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And then like the farmer dude saying like, if the creator wanted us to, what is it? To drive, drive with headless wheels. And like, it also shows stock footage of a farmer and he's like chewing on like wheat. And I think he was trying to make it look like that was the guy talking. And it very clearly doesn't line up. No. No, it was, I don't know if I agree with that assessment that it was supposed to be the guy talking, but I just think in part because Ed Wood had to get out of these like studios quickly and he was shooting things so quickly that he would just take things off the cutting room floor, yeah. like just take, take things that people didn't want and piece them into his movies or build movies around them. It, is it bad to say that part of that reminds me of how we were when we were 21 making movies? Because part of us were like, we didn't give a shit. And well, we didn't use stock footage. No, but there were things where we were like, it's fine. We'll be like, like for instance, not at that degree, not at that not severity. That <laughs> no, not, not at that severity. I understand what you mean. But like, we were like, well, we don't need lights or, you know, no, we'll just yeah, use this. Like, like there's part of, that's true. Part of it as a, as a biopic and as a filmmaker, it was relatable. It was relatable to the people who decided we're just going to do it differently because, like, why do you have to do it complicated? It just turned out that he wasn't that good. But that's not that's not uncommon in fantastic filmmakers, too. I mean, look at Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez made movies with two VHS players to edit yep. and post-recorded everything. Didn't give a shit if the dub lined up at all. He would just have people record stuff. And filmed with a, no crew at all. And made a movie all by himself that was like, wrote on post-it notes. You know? That El Mariachi? Yeah. Like, he did all that. Like, totally against what the rules of Hollywood are. And it was a huge success. Yeah. So, there's something insane about what Edward did. But also something very relatable in terms of every other filmmaker. You know, you trying to find the new way to do something and not necessarily get bogged down by all the rules to follow. Because if you do, it's overwhelming as shit, you know. Especially when you have no budget. Like, he, granted, he was able to secure, like, a, a couple, like, ten or so grand to, like, make a movie. But when you're in the film business, you realize how little that actually gets you on a technical standpoint. Um, yeah, it goes quick. It, it goes quick. So, like... $60,000 sounds insane, but, like, it, I don't even know, like, what he needed it for. Like, you know, like, what it was even going to, and he was, like, running low on his funds. But, yeah, it, uh, it shows that he didn't have the, he didn't have the budget that he wanted to make what he wanted to make. No, and it's weird. I mean, I found myself watching Ed Wood and sometimes hearing him say shit that I've said almost verbatim. Like, um... No, we don't need more takes. Let's move on. We don't need, like, it's fine. Um, or, you know, I could build a movie around the stock footage alone. Like, something else that he said that, like, really got me where I was like, oh, shit, that's almost exactly something I said. Oh, yeah, no, it was money-related, exactly what you're talking about, which was, like, I would, I used to bitch about, like, um, how in Hollywood, it, I think they use too much money, and then in Holland, they have so much less money. I'm like, so they're just wasting money. Like, it was just like, you could do, we could do this for 50 grand. And I still might hold some of those opinions, but it was weird to see those opinions held by a notoriously terrible filmmaker. Yeah. I, at first, it freaked me out. I was like, maybe I'm a terrible filmmaker, folks. But I think. Let I've, us know. Yeah, let us know, please. Um, but I do think part of me has come away realizing that that's another reason this film is so relatable. For any filmmaker, I, my favorite scene in there is when he meets Orson Welles, which I'm not sure if actually ever happened. Or I mean, it feels like that was drama, dramatized. Is dramatized, yeah. dramatized. Yeah, I don't think that actually happened, but I do think like the point of that scene. We're gonna break down a scene from the film. I 
think the point of that scene is to show that at the top of the top versus the bottom of the bottom, the struggle's the same and the love is the same. Like, that's yeah. how I would have read that. I almost would want to rewatch that scene and really break it down and analyze it with you. But I think that's where that's coming from. Yeah, I agree. You know? Because Orson Welles was arguably the best of the best at the time. And Ed oh, Wood it was, was Ed the... Wells. It was Ed Wood's idol. Yeah. He kept saying he wanted to be like Orson Welles. And Ed Wood was notoriously the worst of the worst. He was the Ed Wood of the time. And yet, at the same, they can both have this sort of... I won't say Orson had admiration for him, because obviously Wood had the admiration for Orson in that scene, but there was a mutual respect. They could talk to each other like people and like filmmakers. Now, granted, maybe Orson Welles' opinion of Ed Wood would have changed if he had seen his movies, but you could also argue that he wasn't a known filmmaker, right? So if you meet like a famous person and you say, oh, I'm a filmmaker, then normally the next question is, oh, what, what have you done? Have I seen anything you've done? And if you haven't, then they kind of use that as a way to, I don't know, rate the degrees at which you're separated in the industry. Yep. Um, but it doesn't seem like the scene read that way. Like, it didn't seem like Orson took him any less seriously because he said he was a filmmaker. Because it, you know, it takes one to know one sort of thing. And I really thought that was cool. Like, it was cool. It means that you can still, even if as a bad filmmaker, learn a lot from Ed Wood as a, as a filmmaker and really respect his drive and passion for all that stuff. Yeah, agreed. Uh, one comparison I did want to make about Ed Wood. So it's, it's a weird, it's like, it's a good comparison, in my opinion, the one that I came up with and I'm about to share. But it's also like not like that paralleled because one person I'm comparing him to is generally speaking like good at was good at what they did in some respects so I view like Ed Wood is to filmmaking as Daniel Johnston is to music do you know Daniel Johnston no who's that he was um he was like a singer songwriter between like I think like the late 80s to like um the 2000s and he, he passed away like a few years ago and what he was known for, he's kind of the technically like considered an originator of like lo-fi music, because all he would do, he would record um, just songs in his room, um, poorly recorded because he's playing, he's recording them off like a cassette player. Um, like you can hear him like hit the keys on a keyboard, like you know, like that sound that like if you like turn the music or turn the sound volume yeah, off, yeah, that keyboard, weird like thud. Yeah, you can hear that when he's hitting the chords. You can like, you know, so it's it's very lo-fi, like poorly produced music. And generally speaking, from like a, a production standpoint, it's not good. However, he's also was a very good song songwriter. A lyricist. Yeah, he had a, he had a lot of good songs that like um, just had like really deep or like powerful, um, relatable lyrics to him. But he's generally from a technical standpoint, he's not a very good musician. Like overall, like anyone can can kind of agree with that. But his charm is what made people like him, as well as his songwriting. And he was just someone who did it, like Ed Wood, wanted to make films because he loved making films. Daniel Johnston, not the best singer, maybe not the best musician, but loved making music and continued to make music no matter what. Like one of his, I think it was like his third album, album was a cassette, Hi, How Are You? He was working at McDonald's, and he would just give them out to people in the draft. He'd be like, hi, I'm Daniel Johnston. Here's my album. I hope you like it. And just That's how he got his music out. He just... It's crazy. Working at McDonald's in the drive-thru, just giving them out to customers like as a thank you for going to McDonald's, I guess. And then he got very popular mostly because Kurt Cobain liked his music. And at, like, the I know VMAs, this guy. This guy, this guy had uh, mental illnesses too. He did, yeah. yeah he was about four. Yeah, I remember this guy. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. No, I've heard of some of his music. You know who really likes him? Tom Richards. Uh, I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I like his music too. It's, it's very good, but... Um, yeah, if you know his music and just know his artistry, like I feel like people can can agree with that comparison. They're just these are two people who technically weren't the best at what they did and didn't maybe didn't fully know what they were doing compared mm -hmm. to like more professional people, but did it because they loved to do it and didn't really care what people thought. They just wanted to keep doing it and doing it for the passion and the love. And both of those guys are just two admirable people, no matter what the quality of their work is, because like it's inspiration to just keep doing what you love doing. No matter what, like don't let negativity get you down. Just 
you know, let your passion override what everyone else is saying. It could work out in the end. Absolutely right. And at the end of Ed Wood, you really feel that. Like, he's in the theater watching what he loves. I think the the filmmakers that I like or the actors that I like tend to be the ones that are like that. It's the difference between celebrity and, and, you know, passion for the craft, the art. Yeah. And I'm not saying that everything has to be artistic. Like, look, I love a good blockbuster film, and that also can be very artistic. I'm not saying that only art house film should be the thing that's out there. But, the, you know, the way I feel about these things, and I've thought about this before, too, is like, regardless of how my life would ever turn out, this is all I would ever want to do, is just make things. I love making things. I love the process. And everything else is kind of secondary. I just need to eat and have a place to live and I don't care. I just want to do like creative fun stuff like this. That's what's so endearing about Ed Wood is just someone who just wants to do that. And the Johnny Depp movie is exactly what you just said. Somebody who they have to do it. That's what they need in in their life. And it just, it was unfortunate that he wasn't very good at it, but the the redeeming quality in his films is that his passion is so strong and you can feel that passion is so strong that he, you know, that filmmakers can relate to him. That's why I think he's a cult, he's a cult hero now or like, yeah, you know, he, so, did. he yeah. became a cult, um, sort of icon, right? icon after two years after his death, when he, um, received and he died in seventy eight in nineteen eighty. Received a Golden Turkey Award for the worst director of all time, and that made people interested and be like, "Well, what made this guy the worst director of all time?" So then his movies that must had have been shelved in some capacity got kind of like re released and like resurfaced, and then you know people in a way appreciate them. Like they they got popular after that time, and you can watch all of them right now and. Uh, on today's sponsor, Pluto TV, or YouTube, like I, uh, you just you, you search them and you can just find them and watch them. I've, I I feel like the film does show a slightly biased portion of his life where he's still in that passionate phase, and I would say that I, when I read about his later years doing like porn and dying of alcoholism and a heart attack and living being homeless almost and living from couch to couch, I kind of would wish. To like research a little bit more of that. Yeah, there is a documentary on them. Yeah, there is. Maybe it's kind of cool to watch that. I feel like. I think. I think. I think his past, like his girlfriends, are at least one of them is in it. Really? Yeah. I think the thing that's really interesting is that, from the perspective of the biopic and from what we've been talking about in this podcast, you would be quick to believe that that was a result of his failed career and like how his passion just no one ever really gave him people gave him chances but he never really impressed anybody i'd say and so it's really easy to say like well he was an alcoholic and it wasn't his fault he was homeless it wasn't his fault he had to go into porn or he wouldn't be able to survive type of thing but i'm curious to like see where the passion started to die out and when the the necessity for living and like the depression kind of kicked in i did wonder that did he shift uh monster porn because he knew that you know maybe he's better suited for that like he can actually like make a decent I think buck that, i think that like there were freaks out there that he could sell that too much easier that yeah. like, porn theaters in like the 70s probably exactly. way easier exactly the, i mean if someone's horny they're not going to care what they're watching as long as the uh the stuff they want to see is the, going on the sexual liberation of the 60s and 70s probably lended itself well to him making money in the business but in the more seedy area yeah i would say the reason i'd want to see something on that is because he's depicted as such a hopeful passionate person in the film like just so bright-eyed and like always like he got down but he never stopped trying because that's all he wanted and like the end of the movie after his talk with Orson is like that. He comes in, he's like, this is, we're doing my movie my way because this is what I want and this is, and I'm the director, essentially. And so, I want to see, this is really morbid, so I apologize to our viewers, but I would almost want to see like the death of that passion because it seems like if you read about his life, that had to have died. Like he eventually fell into alcoholism because Mm -hmm. he couldn't make his passion work and he ended up having a sad life dying pretty much alone because his wife didn't even want to walk into the room to see him at the time, which is crazy. There's something so sad about seeing that passion just like be stripped from the eyes, that light taken away. 
But to your point, I think even up until the end, he he maintained some of it. He never let any of it really get him down because even when he, he succumbed to something as low as the porn industry as a director, he maintained monster porn. Yeah, sci-fi like, porn. That's, yeah, that's funny to say, but it's really true. Like, he didn't let go of the thing that interested him. He didn't just make fucking, like, porn films. He, his porn films were like, I'm going to do the porn films, but, like, I'm putting my octopus in there. <laughs> You know? And we're getting the animatronic one that I couldn't get for that other movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting the octopus in there, and uh, yeah, <laughs> people are still going to have to deal with the stuff that I want to make, but I'll just put some, you know, sex and dicks and vaginas in there for you. Sex and dicks and vaginas. Like, he even to the end tried. Sorry, guys, my phone went off. I usually turn it off. How very Ed would have you. Yeah, whoops, my bad. Um, Even till the end. That's like, it. the passion faded, but it never fully went away. And I think that would make a really interesting movie. I agree. I will say, I think someone like Ed Wood deserves a bit of a, if he hasn't had it already. I just, I just don't know a lot of people who watch his films and are aware of him, besides my dad. Hey, Dad. Thanks for the suggestion. Um, but he's someone who I think deserves a legacy for for what he did, you know, for being the worst director of all time. And truly, I would argue, based on watching three of his movies, no one has beaten him at that in terms of just the weird stock footage, the horrible audio. Dude, Tommy Wiseau got close. If you ever watch The Room, I have watched The Room. It is, it, I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody it's knows that. It's just like that. awkwardly bad. These are just like from a narrative perspective. It's all over the place. These films are all over the place. Tommy Wiseau is just like, he has no idea what he's doing. At least Edward kind of had an idea what he was doing. He just wasn't very good at doing that sound. Yeah, it's a totally different person. Like, yeah. Tommy Wiseau did things because he thought he needed to do them. At least how the disaster artist like makes like it. The like the fucking two-minute sex scene. Yeah, like, like he did things because like that's how you do it in Hollywood. But he clearly had no idea because he never worked in it. He built a fucking stage that looked like the outside. Like, that's the idea there. He used green screens when you don't need them because he's like... That's what the audio is in the movies, right? So yeah. it's a terrible impression. Ed Wood was a totally different type of director and a totally different type of salesman because he was also someone that, like, seemed to know what he was doing in some capacity. He knew so what he needed to get it done. He knew what he needed, and he knew, like, how to technically make a film. Like, he knew the editing portion. He knew the lighting department. He had all that stuff. He didn't, like, waste sets. In fact, he was the, he was the opposite. Tommy mm-hmm. Wiseau threw millions of dollars into something that didn't need it. Yep. And Ed Wood was like, I'm going to do this all on a budget, you know, yeah. as much as I can. He could, he could make it work if he needed to. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you but, off. Continue. But that's what I mean, though. Like, how, how he did this, whether they're horrible films or not, like, I think it's still something that, like, he should be taught in a, in a film school. I, I truly believe that Glenn or Glenda should be shown in, like, any sort of, like, editing sort of film class about, like, how to not edit a film. Because like, it's the perfect example of why, like, it's just what bad editing is and how to how to avoid it, basically. I just, uh, because, like, it, it literally shows you, I would, I would argue, everything that you shouldn't do to properly edit a film. And I feel like that's something worth, rather than just saying it, why wouldn't you show it? It's only an hour and 15 minutes. Like, that's a class. So it's a wor- that yeah. is a class right there. That is a worth watching sort of yeah, class. You're totally right. Some character that I think was a little bit underrated, or not underrated, wrong wrong word, um, not featured or focused enough, was Bill Murray's character, actually. I kind of oh, liked the whole subplot about him trying funny. to get... Funny. funny, yeah, trying to get his sex change in Mexico. It was... The only reason why a, I did think he wasn't shown that often is because he only had a role in Plan 9. Like, that's yeah, literally his... That, that's yeah. actually his only, like, film credit. Is Ever. That one character in uh, Plan 9. It's he strange. was a good friend, obviously, and a good support system for Ed Wood. It's strange. There's two levels to this film because Ed Wood came out in 94. And in the 90s, the 90s did have this sort of like progressive tone that kind of like weighed through them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked with my roommate a lot about this. Like it's a little bit forgotten because as soon as like 2000s hit, we like dipped back down into like more of a conservative country. But the 90s was a pretty like progressive time. So this film makes a lot of sense to come out in the 90s to talk about 
transgenderism and cross-dressing and acceptance for LGBTQ, like that makes more sense. Because again, that was a thing that was like, I mean, Boys Don't Cry was like one of the biggest movies of the 90s. And yeah. Pedro Motivar won the, the Oscar in the 90s for um, All About My Mother. Like that was definitely a type of thing that was being talked about more in the 90s. And that means that the film, I won't give the film credit for being like ahead of its time in the 90s, even though I think some people will, but I will give Ed Wood and his friends and Glenn or Glenda massive credit for being the people they wanted to be in the 50s, because that's fucking wild to me. That is crazy. That was, I, I can't remember for the life of me the name of the act, but that was during the beginning stages, I think, of that whatever Hollywood act that came out that like had strict guidelines on what you can and can't um, show and film. And that which got abolished, I think, in like 68 or something like that. It got, a, it got abolished close by, I think, the Midnight Cowboy um, came out. Have you ever seen that? I have. John Voight, Dustin Hoffman. It's fantastic. The air conditioning just came on? No, that's a train. Oh, We're that was near a train, train station. Sorry. Um, um, what was I going to say? I think that when I look back at it now, we were just talking about the whole porn. Maybe he didn't go in there just for the money. He may have actually gone in there because of the censorship. I don't know when his porns were made because he... I think it was like late 60s, 70s. Yeah, I think he was making them until his death. When did he die? 78. 78. It could have been also a sort of like, I'm not going to be censored type of thing. Because he doesn't seem like the type of person that would want to be censored. So he used porn as a way to get out a message because it was the only place where he could still put that message without censorship kind of like the plot of nice guys yeah that, <laughs> that's what a tie-in yeah yeah it's a good point all right might be i don't know it's worth doing further i like your car big boy <laughs> i'm sorry you look puerto rican <laughs> what does he say at the end no he says i'm sorry you look filipino or something because he, he makes uh uh the russell crowe in the ad Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does look quote Filipino. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. All right, should we get out of here and play some b-ball? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Peace out, dudes. Thank you for watching, listening, whatever. Watch Ed Wood.